This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I ought to say welcome back to the program. It's been so long since we've been live because of our last week from the Twilight Zone. I don't know how else to describe it, but I'm thrilled to be back. Hope you're out there listening. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is a live edition of the Word to Stand Up for Life. Uh, it's a program where we take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. All we need you to do is to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630 uh, you can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Monday and, and things are back open, uh, we're going to be having our men's and women's Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, ladies, the, uh, live, you can live stream the ladies portion of it at 7 o'clock. Um, we also have our high school and junior high school age kids that will be here as well. So you can make it sort of a family uh, evening out at the church, and we would love to have you here. Well, let's go right to the phone lines and talk with Lucy from Universal City on line one. Lucy, thank you for kicking us off today. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm so glad you're back. We missed you last week. Um, Wow. My question is related to how sometimes in the scriptures it says um, uh, it warns against eating food that has been offered to idols, or mm-hmm. uh, especially in Revelation where the it, uh, Jesus is uh, calling attention to the churches, the seven churches. And the sins that they commit and warnings and then uh, the rewards for those who are overcomers. And then, so I was wondering, how do we apply that today to our lives? What are some of the things that we might consider food offered to idols? Uh, Or anything else you can shed light on those types of uh, comments in the Bible. Thank you, Lucy. I can do that. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, a couple of things. We're going to be studying this. We're, we're On Sunday mornings, we're in 1 Corinthians, um, and, and we're going to be talking about it. I think uh, the, I'll explain the way it was 2,000 years ago, but, but today, for you and for me, Lucy, this would be a, a, a discussion on Christian liberty and how to use it. And Paul will conclude that the best way to use our Christian liberty is to to, to enjoy what we've been given, to, to thank God for it. Um, the only accommodation we would make is if something that we are doing might stumble somebody else. Now, we don't have a, an issue with meat offered to idols. In the ancient world, um, uh, some of the best and the cheapest meat you could get was meat that had been offered to idols in in worship sacrifices, in uh, religious services, uh, not certainly not Christian religious services, but especially in Corinth where he deals with it. 
um, there would be some people who uh, maybe new converts to Christ. They would think, well, well, I don't want to eat it because it's been offered to an idol. And Paul concludes, you know, meat is meat. Offering it to an idol is nothing. We know that. But you don't want to stumble somebody who is a weaker brother or a weaker sister. You don't want to put a stumbling block in, in front of anybody else. So his suggestion is that we sacrifice those freedoms uh, for the benefit of others, to strengthen, to edify them in their walk. But that's what was happening in Corinth. And whenever Jesus is talking about issues like this in the uh, letters to Revelation, he's simply telling them, you know, don't just don't have anything to do with idols. And in most of those letters, they are rebukes for uh, Christians, their churches uh, that Jesus addresses in these letters. And what he's saying, Lucy, is that those um, um, Christians are, are now backsliding or they're in danger of falling away. And he's he's rebuking them for their lack of attention to detail. Again, this isn't legalism that he's talking about. What he's saying is, remember your first love. He says that to the church of Ephesus. In some of the other churches, they've been infiltrated, as Jesus predicted they would. They've been infiltrated by idol worship and people who weren't really believers, even though they were a part of the Christian assembly. And uh, basically, he's just saying that you've lost your way. And uh, the idea there is simply to to uh, focus on Jesus, focus on who he is and what he's done for you and make Jesus the center of everything instead of what you want. Three, four, zero, ninety five, eighty five. Thank you, Lucy. Um, let's get some more questions. I'm sort of out of my rhythm here of doing this program because it's been so long. Here's a question from Scott from our email inbox. He said, why do you think the Israelites did not circumcise their males while wandering in the desert for 40 years? I know that God's command to do so wasn't nullified by Moses because he had his son circumcised in Exodus chapter 4. Um, and then he quotes Joshua 5, beginning in verse 5. He says, All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. And then verse 7, So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Scott, this is really a, a, a perplexing, perplexing question because we can't possibly know what intent was. Here's what we can know for sure. Um, the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years, still under the law, but remember, they had been slaves for 400 years. Not the same people, obviously, but they'd been slaves for more than 400 years in Egypt. And so they certainly weren't living Christian lives. We would say Christian lives. They weren't living godly lives in Egypt. They were just slaves. Um, when they came out of Egypt into the Promised Land, or on the way to the promised land, we would think that they would be so excited and so so grateful to God that they would rush back to embrace the, the covenant of circumcision. That was the, the outward sign of the promises that God had made them. And all God said was just, just as a sign, circumcise your children on the eighth day. And all the males that had been in Egypt who weren't circumcised, um, you know, in, in the wilderness, having been released, having plundered Egypt, what they should have done was was then say, and, and leadership may have tried, it may have been a failure in leadership. We don't know because we're not told. Uh, but you know what? They just didn't. I always say that you can take the people out of Egypt. Egypt is always a type of the world in Scripture, Scott. But you can't take Egypt out of the people. And so it was a faithless generation, you know, a trip that should have taken 11 days took 40 years because they didn't believe God. So because they were a faithless generation, because they didn't walk by faith, trusting God, um, God simply left them alone. Yes, they knew of the covenant of circumcision. Uh, the problem was um, they didn't care. And I know that sounds horrible. But the truth is, we still have people that don't care what God says even now. Now, in Moses' case, in Exodus chapter 4, when he had to have his son circumcised, Jesus appeared on the road and was going to kill him. And the reason he hadn't had his son circumcised, because his wife wasn't 
uh, we didn't want to be a part of it. She just thought it was barbaric. Circumcision in the ancient world, not so much in Egypt, but, but in the rest of the ancient world, was considered barbarism. And she just thought, this is bloody, this is horrible, and that's not going to happen to my sons. And Moses didn't push her on it. And Moses, because he was the leader to whom much is given, much more is required. Because Moses was the leader, uh, and he failed to be obedient, God wasn't going to let him live. And, of course, we know that, that his wife took the, the, the knife and, and circumcised her children in, in disgust. And then she laughed with the kids until they later returned. So it was just a faithless generation. And uh, when that first generation died and they were getting ready to go in the promised land, they couldn't do it on their own. They couldn't do it apart from uh, being faithful to God. So God had them circumcised, and then they had to be healed. Good question. Thank you, Scott, very, very much. Let's go to Cindy holding on line one. Cindy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Cindy. Good to hear from you. Oh, it's good to have you live again. I actually don't have a question. I'm just calling to say I am so sorry for all the times I teased you about not liking cold, snowy weather. (laughs) (laughs) Also, it's going to be a very long time, if not ever again, that I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Lord for a little snowstorm, because I do every year. I, I pray and ask him, you know, for a little bit of, you know, just a little bit of a snowstorm, but I don't think I'm going to do that again. So anyways, that's all I had to say. Love you guys. Thank you, Bye. And I, oh, and you know, I, I'm so glad that you didn't get stuck in Oklahoma. I didn't know. I thought oh. maybe you had up there, and I was so grateful to find out that you, that, that you didn't. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get to go. So thank you, Cindy. God bless you. And apology accepted. Oh, thank you. Bye. <laughs> Uh, as, as Cindy mentioned, Paul and I were scheduled this past weekend to be doing a marriage retreat in Oklahoma. And um, we were terrified, not not of us going, we were going to fly, but we had but some people from here driving and, and uh, the producer of this radio show and his family were going. Uh, and we didn't want him on the road. It was so scary. When we got hit Sunday with the snow that we hadn't, it's overnight Sunday, um, and it just changed everything. So everything closed down. They're rescheduling, I think, sometime in May uh, for for the the marriage retreat. Uh, but it was just it's, it was just a week. I mean, how can you explain it? It was just a week that wasn't. I I, I can't explain it. We came to church last Sunday, and one of the the sweet young girls here. She's uh, like a, she's a granddaughter to me. And uh, she said, Grandpa, it's going to snow. I hope it snows. And I whispered in her, I said, oh, you are so wrong. And she just laughed. Um, well, I was able to tell her, see, I told you you were wrong. Uh, but wasn't it, it was just a crazy week. I mean, it was um, an unbelievable week. I, I got to tell you, let me brag on our church for a moment, because um, the, 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 the love they showed to one another, the help they showed, the way people swung into action, um, helping people get firewood and helping people with broken pipes and, and all of those things. Uh, it, it was just an amazing display of Christian fellowship. I mean, adverse conditions, as much as I hated it, brings out the best in our people. And I could, couldn't have possibly been any prouder. Uh, any uh, prouder at all. We had some big building difficulties here at Calvary Chapel. Um, Alta Medical got flooded. Uh, the, the place next door to them, their pipes broke. And then uh, an empty place next door to us, the church, uh, it pipe broke and part of our little building got got flooded. Um, but, but we were able to come to church yesterday. And uh, I tell you, I, you'd have thought I was out of church for a year. Uh, that's how happy I was to be back with all of the people. So, thank you. Okay, three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Ralph. He wants me to comment on the Canadian pastor who was arrested for having church. And then he says, "What will you do if it comes to that?" Here, um, Ralph, I can't tell you what I hope I'll do. I'll, I'll explain. For those of you who don't know, there is a. Uh, um, 
pastor, not a Calvary Chapel pastor, a pastor in uh, Edmonton, Alberta, uh, Canada, in the province of, of Alberta, uh, who was physically arrested for having church in violation of the health code um, requirements that, that had been in effect uh, in Canada. Now, this is Canada. This is a Christian pastor, somebody faithful to teach the Bible. And um, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police came and arrested him. Um, they booked him. And and instead of releasing him, uh, because he wouldn't promise not to have church again, um, they're, they, they're going to keep him in jail until it comes time for the hearing, which could probably be as much as two weeks. Um, Ralph, this is simply what the world that we now live in is turned into. Uh, we pray for that pastor, his family, for his church. It's a church of about 400 people, and almost everybody was at church every week. He wasn't going to turn them away, nor should we turn people away. We had way more than that here at church in our three services yesterday. Way more than that. And you see, it's our responsibility. You know, the church is the the the, the foundation and pillar of the truth. In a world completely given over to evil, Isaiah 5 says the time will come when good is called evil and evil is called good. Well, well, here we are, thousands of years later, we're actually experiencing that. And can you imagine, especially after the summer that we've had, this last, just go back over the last 10 or 11 months, had they treated violent protesters, criminals, People destroying property that way. We'd have heard no end of it, but a pastor in a church full of Christians is taken to jail for doing his job. We are commanded by God not to forsake the assembling together of the saints. Church is not an online exercise. Our responsibility as pastors, at least most of us, we understand that we're going to answer to God for how we fulfill that responsibility. And the moment when we can be intimidated by threat of jail to stop declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, to stop ministering to the saints of God, Ralph, it's a, 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 an impossible situation, one that I never thought we'd be in in this part of the world, uh, let alone this country. I have a friend, a casual friend, but a friend nonetheless, a Calvary Chapel pastor in San Jose, California, who's now been fined in excess of $1.7 million. Now, they haven't tried to collect the fines yet, but he continues to meet because that's our job. And we're not putting people in danger we're doing exactly what God tells us to do. And those pastors who are exercising civil disobedience, it's not um, rebellion, it's, it's simply civil disobedience. Same way the Apostle Paul used the, the law when it would help him to advance the cause of Christ well, that's what we would be doing. Now, in terms of what I would do, if it comes to that here, you know, I'm an old guy by now, and if they're going to put me in jail, I hope I have the courage to go. I've said before, Ralph, we're not going to close Calvary Chapel. We were closed just like this church was in Canada at the initial outbreak because nobody knew what we were dealing with, with coronavirus. And everybody was terrified, and the media was pounding how millions of people are going to die. If you get it, it's a death sentence. And we didn't know what to do. And we, just like this Canadian pastor, I think his name is Stokes or something like that, James Stokes. Um, we wanted to be good citizens. But when this kept dragging out, and when it became clear that churches, not liquor stores, by the way, not other places that had nothing to do with Christ when they were able to gather 
when hundreds of thousands of protesters in this country were able to gather, masked and unmasked, and the government did nothing to stop it, it became clear what we were dealing with. This is an assault on the church. So I hope it doesn't come to that here in San Antonio, Texas, Ralph. But if it does, pray for me. We're not going to close our church again. We're not going to turn people away again. Um, This is what God has called us to do. And hopefully uh, I'll have the courage to follow through with that. Here is a question from Roy. What is a sin that leads to death? Um, Roy, it's a hard one. Uh, Nobody really knows the Bible doesn't tell us. It just says that there is a sin that leads to death. The Apostle John writes that in in his first epistle. Um, It's a sin that is so vile, a sin that that has such severe consequences. Um, I believe that it deals with believers, and I think it's a sin that is so egregious uh, that the punishment is death, not eternal death. Once God seals you with his spirit, he doesn't take it back. Your name is written in Lamb's Book of Life. We're told that he won't blot us out. But I think that we have seen some some instances um, where people have done really, really bad things. People that have been really gifted by God. Their ministry is blessed by God. And uh, and God takes them out. I can tell you an example in, in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. Um while they weren't leaders in the church, um, they were really Satan's first accomplices in bringing hypocrisy into the church and trying to besmirch the witness of the of the church and the community. And God took them out. And, and, and the Bible makes no apologies for that. God killed them. And he was making a statement about... Uh, hypocrisy inside the church. Now, he doesn't do that anymore, but but he let us know his heart towards hypocrisy in a Christian's life. And so that was done. More recently, Ralph, and, and I'm going to speculate here because I don't know any of this and, you know, God's not sending me messages. Um, but, but I personally believe that we've seen um, this with, with the Ravi Zacharias scandal. I mean, Ravi Zacharias went in for surgery um, for a back problem that he's had his entire adult life. Uh, he's had a lot of surgeries. This time, when they opened him up, they found a, a very aggressive cancer, and he was dead within 60 days. Um, now we know that there was a lot of really pernicious sin going on in Ravi's life behind the scenes. And now we, the church, his family, the the people that worked alongside of him, were suffering the consequences of the world, pointing fingers at us, saying, oh, all you Christians are liars. You're just like everybody else. And again, I'm I'm being very careful here because I don't have any insight from God, but I think um, Ravi, who was fine one day, had a pain in his back uh, that was no different than any other pain, and two months later he's he's, uh, in heaven. And I do believe he's in heaven. I think God took him out. And I think I think when Ravi stood before the Lord on that day, Ralph, I, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like. So he may have thought he got away with it in life. But even in the two months, as his condition was diagnosed as terminal, and he knew that he had very little time left, there was no sign of repentance no sign at all of remorse. He, he didn't tell anybody. He didn't do anything to help the victims of his crimes. These are things that are really important. And so that's all we know, Ralph, is that there is a sin that leads to death. What it is is uh, different, I think, in different circumstances. Excuse me, I'm coughing. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think what are we at? Couple minutes under left. Two, under two. Under two minutes left for this half. Patrick says, Pastor Ron, what is the unforgivable sin in Matthew chapter twelve? Uh, Patrick, the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All other sins can be forgiven, and that particular sin 
is defined by rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit unto death. His job is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And if we don't respond to that, he leads us to Jesus, the answer for those things. And if we reject his calling us to himself, and we die in that condition, then we die with no remedy for our sin at all. So, Patrick, that's the only unforgivable sin. If you think maybe you've committed it because you did something bad, you haven't. Just repent, and things will be well. Hey, we got 30 minutes left in our Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our monday live program i'm going to keep saying that simply because i'm so happy to be back live with you guys 340-9585 here's a question from henry He says, what does it mean in Romans 8 that the Spirit groans within us? Um, Henry, I I think, you know, a lot of people will will say, well, you know, this is is a reference to the gift of tongues. It it isn't. It really isn't. I I think it's just as as all creation groans. Uh, We we know that from Romans chapter 1. I think there are things that happen in this world and we look at it and, and, and our spirit is just crushed. Heartbroken. So when the, when it says the spirit groans within us, I think there is uh, a sense of loss or a sense of grief, uh, sometimes uh, righteous anger that so resonates within our spirit that all we can do is groan. Henry, I don't know if you've ever been at that place where um, your heart was hurting so much or, or something was happening that was so painful to, to watch that you just didn't have words. I mean, there's a whole lot of times in my prayer time with the Lord that I just can't articulate in words the depth of pain that I'm feeling. Uh, I, I just got, before we went on the air, I, I got notice that uh, a, a man, an elderly man in our church who's been so faithful for such a long time uh, is is now in really serious condition in the hospital and you know, I deal with that kind of pain so often that there's there's nothing that you can do. I mean, we can we 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 can pray and we do, but there's times when you just have to groan and and cry out and and I think that's what it means. The spirit groans within us because there isn't English words. Now, there, there's a good opportunity in times like this to use the gift of tongues, but but even if you don't have the gift of tongues, um. To articulate your prayer, to articulate the depth of pain in your heart, uh, I think the Holy Spirit will help us. I think sometimes it's just tears. Other times it's just sort of an anguish of soul. But, uh, Henry, that's, from my perspective, um, what it means that the Spirit groans within us. Here is a question from Daryl. He said, do you think that Jesus made sin offerings according to the law? Daryl, we don't know. We're not told. We know that Jesus kept the law. He kept it perfectly. But remember, if you didn't sin, if you weren't guilty of sin, then there was no law that would require you to make a sin offering. Now, Jesus was the only person that this would ever have applied to. So I personally don't think that Jesus would have made sin offerings according to the law. Uh, when his father said on three separate occasions, uh, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, um, I think Jesus was finishing his course and knew where he stood. Uh, there, there was he, was he was God, but he was also human. I don't think that was a conflict within him, but it would have been sort of 
uh, disingenuous had Jesus gone in and simply to keep the law had offered um, um, uh, blood offerings, blood sacrifices uh, for sin that he didn't commit. So I, I, I personally don't think that he did, um, but honestly, we're not told about the specific offerings Jesus made, only that he kept the law uh, without spot or blemish. Here's a good question from Melissa. She wants to know, uh, God is sovereign, so why do we pray? Um, Melissa, this is one of the the most difficult questions to answer um, because it's difficult to explain adequately. But you made the statement that God is sovereign, and so he is. I don't want anybody to misunderstand that. But there are some things that we learn in Scripture that prayer moves the heart of God. Now, obviously, if our prayer moves the heart of God or changes a direction that God is going. He knew, because he's sovereign, he knew that that's what he was going to do. In in the case in the wilderness, it's, it's a perfect example. Uh, we read in the King James, and it's a bad translation, that God repented that he even made many, he repented that he chose Israel. Uh, I mean, he, he, he they got on his last nerve over and over and over. But um, he moved on Moses' heart. He did it in an interesting way. In one case, Melissa, he said to Moses, um, your people have sinned. I'm fed up with them. So you go. You lead them. I'll make you a great nation, Moses. And, and Moses thought, no, no, I, I can't go without you, God. And this was God just putting Moses in a, in a position of an intercessor. It's a perfect picture of a type of Christ in this regard. And so Moses would appeal to God based on the word of God and the promises and the character of God. And though he was praying for the people, when God said, no, I'm done with them, Moses moved the heart of God. There are times when God puts people on my heart, Melissa, uh, um, lately there's been a couple people that I know are not believers. Um, we have a man who is dying, um, who's not a believer, and God, God will not let me rest. No, a sovereign God knows if that man is going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I have another lady who, who um, in the church with a family from our church, uh, the mother, and um, God's just got these people in my heart to pray for. And if we take the approach, well, you're sovereign, God, so why are you bugging me with this? Well, God moves the heart of people so that the people's prayers can move the heart of God. Now, that doesn't mean God changes his mind or God says, okay, I'll give him another break. We, we remember Hezekiah. He was told he was going to die prophet came and told him this this illness is going to end in death. He said, I don't even have an heir. What's, what's, what's the value of all this that we've done and we've accomplished? He was a good king, by the way. And God sent the prophet back to say, okay, I'll give you another 15 years. So the prayer of people moves the heart of God. And we don't have to understand why. One thing I can tell you for sure is that God knows who is going to be saved but wouldn't you want to be somebody that partnered with God in wanting them to be saved? I think that's why we pray. We pray because we're told to pray. We pray because it's an opportunity to talk to the one who loves us with an infinite love. And so we pray. And I think, Melissa, it's so human. One of the things that we are guilty of as humans is is, is we think God thinks like us. But he doesn't. His ways are not our ways. His ways higher than our ways. And we look at something and say, well, if God already knows what's going to happen, then why do I have to pray? God is saying, no, you get to pray so you can partner with me in what I'm doing. And this is just one of those things that is so important. Partnering with God in prayer to accomplish the will of God. And somehow our prayers move the heart of God. I, I can't understand it. I can't explain it. But I know it's true. So, Melissa, yes, God is sovereign. And he tells us to pray. And because we call him Lord, 
then we pray. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And that's one of the things that we need to remember. Um, You know, things that we look at a very linear view of the world. God is enthroned in heaven above all judgment. And God is simply giving us the opportunity to partner with him in doing what he's going to do. I think that's more valuable than you can imagine. Thank you, Melissa, for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Daniel. Um, Pastor Ron, John MacArthur has come under attack for having an extravagant lifestyle. May I have your thoughts, please? Um, Daniel, there are a couple of bloggers uh, who have made, uh, because John MacArthur is rebelling against the health authorities and and has remained open um, and the enemy is trying to silence him. Um, John MacArthur's made some enemies and they're trying to find anything and everything everything they can to discredit him. Now let me tell you something about John MacArthur and this is from somebody who's not a John MacArthur fan in the sense of his doctrine. John MacArthur is a Calvinist. Um, He's sort of a strange Calvinist but he is a Calvinist. And um, um, uh, I, I just have nothing to do with Calvinism. But beyond that, John MacArthur is a wonderful Bible teacher. He's been used by God to do amazing things. And because he's taking a stand against authority right now, he's got a bullseye on his back. And we need to be praying for John MacArthur in his church. We really need to be praying for him. Now, uh, the blogger's name, the, the one who's made him a specific target is a, is a woman named Julie Royce. And she is out of the Chicago area. And she has made a journalistic living attacking preachers. Sometimes um, um, well-deserved attacks. Um, she was instrumental in, in James McDonald, um, who, who was not a faithful man. Um um, she was responsible in large part for taking him down. Um, but John MacArthur, uh, he doesn't live an extravagant lifestyle. He owns property. I think he has three different pieces of property, two in Southern California, which is like a bazillion dollars, and, 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 a, and a, a retreat that he owns in Colorado. That land was given to him, and he built on that retreat. But because of the value of that land, she says, here's a guy who's against the prosperity message, and yet he lives this extravagant lifestyle. There's nothing extravagant about it. I don't know how much he makes. John MacArthur has been faithful at Grace Community Church in Southern California for now more than 50 years. And why it is, Daniel, that people think pastors should die broke, I don't get it. I think whatever his estate is valued at, and it's, I mean, he's a land millionaire, multimillionaire. But after 50 faithful years serving God, without a hint of scandal, by the way, isn't he entitled to retire at some point? He's going to have to retire. To retire with some degree of comfort. So I just think, Daniel, we need to stop reading these attack blogs and take away the audience. They'll stop, but um, I just don't think John MacArthur has done anything wrong at all. Let's go to the phone lines. we got Scott from Shirts on line one. Scott, good to hear from you. You're on the air. Good, ap- good afternoon. Uh, I bet you're loving this weather today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy not to be cold, Scott. That's all that I care yeah. about right now. Well, I'm originally from Iowa, and it's pretty cold. It's been cold up there this last week, so I talk with family and what have you. But I wanted to just mention on the the, the discussion you just had about the prayer, um, and I maybe get your comments on it too, but just out of my own experience, I mean, when God answers prayer, he never answers it the way that I'm asking him to. Um, <laughs> so um, most of the time it's so much better than what I could even even think of. Um, but I, I look at prayer, fasting and prayer particularly, 
as not aligning God with my heart, but aligning my heart with His. And it seems like the, the necessity of prayer in my life is to get me in alignment and get me in the center of His will. And anyway, I just wanted to, to mention that, and then I'll, I'm going to listen to you on the air. God bless you, Thank brother. Thank you. You too, Scott. Thank you very, very much. You know, Scott, I, I, I couldn't say it any better than you just did. Um, um, our conversation with God is part of the sanctification process. And we become more like him. And again, we pray, as you indicated, not to get God to, to change his mind to what we want. But the idea is to change our mind and heart. So we want what God wants. David writes that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. So as you delight yourself in Jesus, as we talk to him, then he takes the desires that he has for us and he makes a deposit of those desires in our heart so he can just say yes. I think God wants to say yes so many times and we don't let him because we, we, we won't be like him and say, well, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. So, Scott, I think you're exactly right. I think the, the, the whole purpose of prayer is for us to become more like Jesus, to get to know him better. And when we are doing that, when we're partnering with God in our day-to-day, even minute-by-minute life, uh, he delights us. I also, Scott, I love you said he, he, he never answers your prayers the way you think he's going to answer. I have a dear friend, one of my best friends in life. He just wrote me an email last night, and he said, uh, "He said, you know, um, and he was talking about some things, some decisions that that he and his wife have made over the years. I thought, I thought God was we'd buy a piece of land to go out here, and we we're going to live there. And he says, but but God never answered the prayers the way I wanted them to be answered, and yet He so blessed us. Now they're at a place where they're making some decisions, and they're seeing that they're being led by the Lord. And I called those curveballs of blessings." You know, just the minute we think we know why we're praying for something and the minute we think we know what God is going to do or why he did a particular thing in our life, I think that's real arrogance and it doesn't matter. We're so result-oriented. We think, okay, well, God wants me to buy this piece of property and that's where we're going to live. We're going to minister out there. You don't know that. If we can just learn to take things one step at a time, God tells us to pray, we pray. God gives a direction to go do something. We go do that something. And then we let God sort of chart our path. And then we're going to find that we end up in places that are so wonderful that we could never have dreamed those things. You know, Scott, uh, 25 years ago, a little more now than 25 years ago, um, the Lord uh, spoke to my heart and, and asked me to begin praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas. Now, I knew I was called to be a pastor, so I assumed that San Antonio, Texas was going to be the place that we, we, um, we planted a church. And while that much is true, that's never what he said to me. When we finally said, okay, Lord, why are we praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas? He said, one thing, that's where I'll be waiting for you. And you know, Scott... In all of those times for praying, I never got one more piece of direction about what we're going to do. We get to San Antonio. Now, my mind went wild with stuff, but it never, none of it happened the way I thought it would. And everything turned out infinitely better than I ever imagined it could. And I think when, when God tells us to do something, to pray for people, to pray for something, I think our only responsibility is to be faithful in that one thing without any expectations at all. And I think that's one of the keys. You know, when the Apostle Paul Scott said that he learned the secret of being content in every circumstance, I personally believe that that is the secret of being content. Okay, God, you want me to do this today? I'm not going to tie that to a result. I'm going to do what you told me to do and rejoice in the fact that you gave me the opportunity to do it. And so often we'll do something and in answer to, to, to what the Lord is speaking to our heart, and then we'll expect a certain result, and then we get disappointed because it didn't turn out the way we thought. I've really and truly learned. Finally, after all these years, I've truly learned to be content in every circumstance because I have no expectations of what those prayers or those requests by God are going to lead to. 
I just learned to delight that God asked me to do anything at all. And there's no result at all as well. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it very, very much. Here is our next question. It comes from Dorothy. Um, Pastor Ron, how should false teachers or false prophets be confronted by the church, especially by people like you with public ministries? You know, Dorothy, everybody nowadays has a public ministry. You know, all you got to do is look at YouTube or go online, see social media. Um, and you got guys making all these prophecies lately. You know, of course, uh, Donald Trump is going to win. Then Donald Trump is 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 um, is, is going to be restored. Uh, Joe Biden will not be um, um, inaugurated on January twentieth. And and you know the real tragedy is that Christians still listen to these people when they try to cover up their false prophecies with all kinds of excuses. So false teachers and false prophets not only should be called out for being false teachers or false prophets, they also need to lose their audience. That's one of the ways that we should we should confront them. Just say, okay, I'm not going to listen to anything you have to say. Their churches ought to be empty. And, and we don't do that. Well, you know, they weren't right, but, but now they say this... And we're setting ourselves up. Now, with regard to your question about people like me with public ministries, this is a ministry, Dorothy, that that I hope is edifying. Uh, I hope it's a source of encouragement for people. And I don't have an agenda. I, I don't argue with people. Uh, I, I've, I made a, a commitment when we started this nine years ago. I made the commitment not to avoid questions. Uh, I'll answer questions as best I'm able uh, even when they deal directly with people, I just had a question about John MacArthur, um, um, and, and so so I'm going to answer questions, and I'm going to hopefully encourage people to press in and follow Jesus. But this isn't a ministry to argue with people. This isn't a ministry to point fingers. I don't claim to be a discernment ministry. My job isn't to set everybody else right. My job is to tell people about Jesus. And it's the best job in the whole world. So um, I think uh, when I've been asked about these false prophecies and and false teachers, uh, I've been very straightforward. Um, The issue is most people just don't listen. We've got our favorites. They've got a presence on social media. So we listen to them. Um, But um, our job is to do what God's called us to do. Our job isn't to point fingers at other people. Again, make no mistake. If somebody's lying, if somebody's not telling the truth, and I get the opportunity, but uh, I'm, I'm going to call them out. But remember, I'm not anybody's spokesman except Jesus's, and I'm 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 really not interested in in a public platform, a public platform rather, that's based on um, me pointing fingers at other people. I think the individual Christian is the one who's responsible to God and to others to hold their pastors, false prophets, teachers accountable to teach the truth. We've got three minutes left in the program. Adam wants to know, since God knows the time of our death, can we lengthen it or is it predetermined? Adam, this goes back to the question about God's sovereignty. Um, you know, a, a, a person that is healthy, generally speaking, is going to live longer than a person who's not healthy. I think that makes perfect sense to all of us. Um, so we can lengthen our lives. We we have um, um, somebody in the church, a young man in the church, who's been around now for a long time, but um, he, he lost like 75 pounds. Uh, and he, he just looked so good. And I just hugged him and thanked him. I said, you just added 15 to 20 years to your life. So as your pastor, as your friend, thank you. Your family thanks you. Your children will thank you. Um, but the truth is, God still knows what time he's going to die. So God doesn't determine our time of death, Adam. He just knows when we're going to die. 
Every breath is in his hand. So it's not like God is sitting in heaven saying, okay, Pastor Ron, I'm going to let him live to be 75. It's not that at all. God knows if I'm going to make it that far or not. So I can lengthen my life naturally, physically, by taking care of my body, by not doing dangerous or crazy things. But make no mistake, God doesn't for a minute forget that he knows when, exactly when we're going to die. It's not like God has ever thrown off guard by by our death. He knows exactly when it is. So we, we can't lengthen it. I, I mentioned Hezekiah earlier. His life was extended 15 years. But, but it wasn't because he prayed. God knew he was going to do it because God had a plan. So some people die young. Some people die really, really old. Most of us live approximately 70 years. And um, I just, I think the, the, the approach we ought to take is to be really focused on increasing the quality of our lives, however long that is. So Adam, I hope that makes sense to you. I know we're coming close to time. Uh, here's a question from Gail. This will be the last one I can get today. She said, you have said people will die in the millennium. What happens to them? Oops. Gail, I'm going to save that one for tomorrow. I thought I had another minute or so, so tune in tomorrow. Hey, it really has been nice being back live. I'm sort of out of rhythm for the show. Thank you for being patient with me. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Remember the men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.